Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of the Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Frank Miniter, New York Times bestselling author of the book The Ultimate Man's Survival Guide, as well as contributor to Forbes and field editor of American Hunter. He's also the author of a book we'll be discussing today, The Future of the Gun. Frank, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So, first question, Frank, is why should Blaze readers, from novices to avid gun enthusiasts, pick up your book, and what are the key things that they'll walk away with from it? Yeah, this cuts through all that media bias and spin and ignorance that we see out there uh, with regards to the gun issue. You know, I, I'm a gun owner. Um, I've been a gun owner my whole life, um, and also a journalist. And looking around, especially after Newtown, I decided it was about time an investigative journalist just dug into the, the gun issue like no one had before. So I went to, with, uh, to, went to the ATF, uh, went through their records and spent time with their field agents and how they deal with, with gun crime and so on and found out uh, where stolen guns really come from and where criminal guns really come from and uh, how they steal them and how they get them. Uh, I spent time with inner city gang members um, to get their point of view and to ask them how they get their guns. I mean, you might as well ask in that direction. Um, and actually, I was very surprised talking to them because over over and over again, I would ask them, what do you think about gun control? Does it help? Does it, what, what does it do to you here? And they would tell me again and again that it's stupid and, and it actually makes it easier for, for people like them to commit crimes. And then I went to the R&D departments for the major gun manufacturers um, to see what the future holds technologically uh, for firearms. And meanwhile, I, I went with lobbyists from the NRA and, and the National Shooting Sports Foundation uh, to, see, to get behind the curtain to see what they really do, they're often demonized in the media. I wanted to put you know, the flesh and the bones on these people and see who they are and what they do and what they're actually up to. So I, I went into, and did all that too and just basically just ran around the country going to each part of the segment, pulling it all together um, to see where we've come, uh, where we are now, and where we're going uh, with guns in America. So with that, let's start with the historical basis of guns. You know, it always helps to have context for... Uh, you know, the kind of conversations that we're having nationally. And a big focus of your book is the historical connection between the gun and freedom in America, as well as the link between civilian usage of guns and military usage of guns. So speak a little bit to that. Yeah, what I did was I started uh, with an old friend, uh, Phil Schreier. He's he's the senior curator in the National Firearms Museum uh, there at the NRA headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia. And we went through the whole lineup from the Mayflower gun from the beginning up through uh, to today, looking at the engineering, the designing, who did these guns. Uh, and over and over, it was, it was clear, I mean, I knew this already, but, but having him do the hands-on thing is neat. Uh, it's clear that civilian uh, gun designers are always the ones that came up with the new technologies, and, and civilians had always used the same gun designs as the military was using. In fact, the military often used these gun designs after civilians had vetted them and proven them and used them for hunting, used them for, for self-defense and protection. Uh, and the semi-automatic firearm, which has become controversial today, developed in the late 19th century, was much more uh, often used by the civilians in America than it was by the military. In fact, uh, civilians, I mean, the, the Remington had what they call their automatic rifle, semi-automatic rifle, out, I think, in 1906. Um, and, and Savage Arms had one out right about at the same time with a similar name. Uh, it was very common for, for hunters and, and target shooters and people protecting their homes to have those semi-automatic gas-operated firearms. Um, the military finally jumped on board in a big way with the M1 Grand for, during World War II, but it, it was the civilian gun designers and gun arms and that link that, to freedom that we've always had in this country that drew that and gave that to them. Um, to round that out, I, I spent time with some uh, Special Forces guys, and I asked them the question. I, I said, 
you know, when you're training people, a lot of these people were trainers. When you're training people, uh, what was your challenges and what, you know, about guns in America and how did, what do you think of it? Um, and over and over again, they would tell me they were big supporters of the Second Amendment and that uh, when they went to the uh, survival school and the training schools um, and the SEAL programs and so on, they always had to train people more who came from a non-gun background in America. They said that the, that it was they were in the business of actually creating country boys was the phrase that, that stuck in my mind hearing from them. So they saw this link that's always been there. It's always been a part of us uh, with firearms in America. And this, of course, brings brings us forward then uh, to the AR-15, uh, which Colt uh, came out with um, in 1962 after they got the patents and got the, the rights to that gun. And they actually developed it and handed it to the civilian market before the military um, came out with it and became known as the M16, later iteration of the AR-15. So always civilians have been a part of this whole product line. Um, and that's right up till today. I mean, Maryland, we just saw a decision calling uh, AR-15s unusual. Um, a federal judge decided so they can be banned and upheld a Maryland law. Um, that's that's silly. I mean, they're they're not unusual. It's actually one of the most popular rifles sold today. Uh, it's been an, it, Americans have been able to buy it. Civilians have been able to buy it here since 1962. Yeah, and, and talking about an unusual weapon, um, one of the things that you talk about in your book is the concept of a, a quote-unquote assault weapon how that's sort of an invented term. Speak a little bit to that. Yeah, it's totally a politically invented term. And it, it came out of uh, an anti-gun, uh, his name was Sugarman. Um, he, he worked for the National Violence Policy Center. Um, and he decided, it's a pretty good idea. He said, people will be afraid of this term. They will use this terminology. We can demonize a certain type of, of weapons. They call them assault weapons. Um, and we can get them banned. Um, so that's actually that kind of idea is actually what led to the 1994 assault weapons ban um, that passed through Congress and was in effect for 10 years from 1994 until 2004 until uh, George W. Bush let it expire. Um, so it was there, and you know it's interesting if you look at that and you hear people talk about that and you look at crime rates and homicide rates uh, during that period of time and. They were falling uh, even you know, you know before that and continue to fall after that. Uh, it really it's statistically it's, it's hard to find any effect that that assault weapon ban had, and of course it wouldn't. I mean, less than three percent of murders in this country are done with rifles, and we don't know. And the FBI doesn't tell us, but we don't know what percentage of that is from uh, so-called assault weapons. But it's some smaller percentage of that three percent. Yeah. So since since uh, you kind of jumped into some interesting facts there, uh, if you were to speak with a gun safety proponents who's for more stringent gun regulations. What, you know, people, our readers, are probably familiar with John Locke's work, but is there one particular statistic that you think is most staggering that most strongly makes the case that more guns do mean less crime? Well, it's easy to look at very nationally. Because look at the number of concealed carry permits uh, for, for carrying a concealed handgun. Uh, in, in about 1985, there were about 1 million of them in the United States. Now there are about 10 million of them. Well, meanwhile, the crime, I mean, homicide rates have been falling. Um, and if you look statistically at those, that, particularly at those individuals who have a concealed carry permit, you find out that they actually commit crimes on par with about the level that police officers commit crimes. And some studies even showed less than police officers commit crimes. So they're very safe. They basically don't commit crimes. Um, you know, and yet gun sales have been just going up and up in this country, but the homicide rate has continued to fall. So it's hard to make the argument that, you know, that against more guns equal less crime because it's just proven over and over again that it's true. And, and one of the examples of law-abiding folks looking to protect themselves would be both Heller is one of them and the McDonald case is the other. So first I'd like to touch on Heller too and, and explain to us what Heller 1 was. 
And then I'd like to ask the question, how is it that today McDonald literally cannot get access to a gun outside of his house? Yeah, Otis McDonald has passed on uh, recently. But, um, yeah, he, he couldn't uh, up until his death, and even though he'd gone to the Supreme Court and won, and either can Heller uh, still, you know, that um, he, he went all the way to the Supreme Court and won that being an individual right, and he still couldn't carry a gun outside of his home. The only really good benefit that came out of that was that a person could have an operable gun in their home. And we heard right after that um, that you, you would see Wild West shootouts on the streets in D.C. and homicide rate was going to jump, but the homicide rate in D.C. has fallen since then. So, I mean, again and again, you know, more guns do equal less crime. And another question that I would have is you talk about there being two gun cultures in America. Talk talk a little bit about that concept, and I'd also ask the question, how much of it is the weapon versus the people using the weapon? So, in other words, uh, we know that places that have more guns, typically legal guns, typically have less crime. How much of that is self-selection of people that believe in individual liberty want to have guns legally and people in less safe areas maybe don't have as passionate feelings towards weapons, playing devil's advocate? Yeah, okay, that, that's a very deep and, and very important question, and I answer that in, in, in different ways, but um, one one important lesson, actually this kind of changed my worldview a little bit, to look at the the other side and to look at the, the rougher streets um, and what their culture is and why the, the gang-on-gang violence is where most shootings are today, why they're happening, what's going on. So I went actually with some uh, former gang members uh, into the streets of New York, and, and they were showing me their neighborhoods and, and what happens there and telling me their stories. And at one point, I stood on a street corner with a former gang member who has a felony conviction. You can never own a gun again. But he looked around. He said, look, let me show you what's going on here. Uh, he, he said, over there, you see, the sh- you see some stores that are open. There, there are shop owners there. They should be the pillars of the society. They, they should be the, the leaders. They should, everyone should look up to them. But they don't. They've been neutered. Their guns are taken away. They have to call 911 and hope if something happens. So there are victims waiting to happen. He said, look around more. There's a cop. He says, unfortunately, too often the youth, especially the young, uh, the young guys in this neighborhood, they don't look up to police officers. And there's all sorts of deep reasons for that. And okay, um, so that's there. And he said, look around more. What else do you see? What do you see are some gang members here. And look, look at this youth here and there. Um, so what you end up with is that young guy, he looks around the neighborhood and he looks for the power, right? He looks to the gang member who has a gun tucked away in his shorts. He's the power in that neighborhood. Um, whereas the, the average person who's been disarmed and the average uh, store owner who's been disarmed are neutered. They don't. So he says, how do you then change this? He says, the only way I can see to change this is to empower the individual, if they, if they desire to, to carry concealed. And then your mother or that store owner or whomever is on par, is equal to that gang member and so on who's carrying that gun illegally. And you've just then brought mature people who know how to responsibly handle guns and will take those courses and so on into that society to be good examples of gun owners, and you've changed the whole social dynamic then um, of that idea of the gun in those bad neighborhoods. That's the way you fix it. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, of course, countering sort of the ability for folks to defend themselves and put themselves on an equal playing field with gangbangers in in urban areas, for example, are just the labyrinths of both federal and state regulate around guns. In your book, you talk about the SAFE Act in New York, uh, as well as regulation you mentioned earlier in Maryland, um, and prospective regulation around smart guns. Uh, What, in your view, based on your studies, is the most asinine gun law in the country? (laughs) Well, that's tough to start. Uh, You know, I'm a New Yorker, so the SAFE Act does drive me crazy. Uh, You know, they expanded and broadened that political term, uh, assault weapon, uh, to such a degree where 
I can have a Model 1100 semi-automatic Remington shotgun, which is it started. It was made first in 1962. Um, it's an old, uh, just cool uh, gun people use for shooting skeet and hunting, hunting with hunting ducks and that kind of thing. With yet, if I put a pistol grip on that semi-automatic shotgun, it's considered to be an assault weapon and it's banned in the state of New York. I mean, that's the level that that law has gone to. In fact, it's even gone beyond that. It's gone to a place where a, a social worker it comes into your home, and if they think they see something unsafe, they then can report anonymously. You don't know they're doing it and their name is not involved, anonymously uh, to the state that they think your gun should be taken away for whatever reason they deem that your gun should be taken away. And then an order has to be placed, and the state police then have to come and actually give that person or do something. They're, in the law, they're not held liable. They can't be sued for having taken your Second Amendment rights away without any due process, without anything that you can do uh, counter to this. That's how crazy the law is. Yep. And, of course, there's also a knock-on effect uh, not just in terms of restricting individual Second Amendment rights, but also the economic impact of this. So you talk about Remington, uh, I believe in upstate New York, uh, as well as the effects on Beretta factories who were rudely awakened uh, by regulations implemented in their state. Talk a little bit about the economic impact of these regulations. Uh, it, it's massive, and, and the company's moving. I mean, it's an interesting stat that actually two-thirds of the guns sold in America are made in America, I mean, whatever uh, other manufacturing uh, sector can say that, especially a hard metal manufacturing sector. So there's still a lot of guns made in America. Most guns are still made in America. But now they're being forced to move from, you know, it used to be called Gun Alley up Connecticut, the Connecticut River, up into New York. They, they used to call that Gun Alley. There's still a few left, but a lot of them are moving. You know, Mossberg is the largest uh, manufacturer of shotguns in the United States. They just decided to shift more jobs from Connecticut to Texas. Uh, uh, Remington Arms, which is, the oldest plant still making its original product uh, in northern New York. It started, I think it was 1816. Um, now it's shifting its jobs from there uh, to Alabama. Uh, and then you have Beretta leaving, uh, completely leaving with their manufacturing facility uh, from Maryland and taking it to Tennessee. And they're all doing it very openly. I and mean, I've, I've interviewed the CEOs of these companies and so on very openly because of the regulations passed that are impeding on, on the Second Amendment rights of individuals. Jumping on a topic that is a little bit more optimistic in nature, you speak to a number of different new technologies coming down the pipeline with respect to guns, be it the tracking point video screen scoping where even a novice can hit a target from 10 football fields away, as well as the Intelligun. Can you talk a little bit about some of the interesting new technologies coming down the pipeline and how far away they are from being in consumers' hands and ubiquitous? Yeah, it's been fascinating, especially I, I managed to sit down with a bunch of mostly young engineers, and they're coming out of college, and they're used to uh, using CAD programs, and, and the new one is SolidWorks, where they can actually build a gun on the computer screen. So they're able to do things outside of those old big manufacturers that, you know, that have their own opinions and things, um, and build these guns. They're taking, they said, look, here we have a piece of metal and wood and polymer, and, and I, there's all these new technologies that I can take that and reshape it and do things with it, that, that manu the big manufacturer just hasn't really conceived of yet. So all these new brains are coming in, this new technology, and they're adding uh, laser sights embedded within the frames. Uh, they're, ad they're adding light systems into them, and they're starting to add more electronic stuff. And tracking point, of course, scope uh, is, is a digital optic scope. Uh, you're not actually looking through the scope. You're looking at a digital image of what's, what's downrange, and that's linked to the trigger system. And it, the gun won't go off until 
it's in line with the target. You, you tag a target and you pull the trigger, and the gun really won't uh, go off until it's perfectly in line so you can hit that distant target. Well, that technology is just the beginning of what we're starting to see shape, reshaping this technology. Uh, the, the military is putting a lot of money into what they call the one-shot program, and this is very similar, where an optic is, is a digital optic is, is attached to the, to the gun's firing mechanism and the trigger mechanism so that when you pull the trigger, um, you, you not just can pick and tag a target, but in the future, and this is right down, right down. I mean, within 10 years, we're going to see this. Um, it, you can actually pick where you're going to hit on a target. So it could pick up a human shape, and you could decide, I'm going to actually set this gun to wound, or I'm going to set it to kill. I mean, that sounds very sci-fi, but it's really possible now with today's technology. The integrating the technology together is, is what's key. Um, so these, these engineers took me through these processes and how they're doing it. Um, and it, it gets very techy, but uh, it, it's fascinating. Yeah, and you even talk in your book to uh, some technology that's been installed even in schools which allow teachers that are trained in firearms to protect their students and automatically send signals to law enforcement. Talk a little bit about that technology. Yeah, that's the IntelliGun. The, the IntelliGun has a biometric scanner. It's a smart gun, which is very controversial because the anti-gun movement wants to mandate this technology which is putting a big wet blanket on it. Most of the big manufacturers won't touch the technology because of the th uh, threats of mandating it. But some small companies have, and Kodiak Arms is a small company in Utah. They, they hired outside people who had the, the, the technical expertise in, in, in biometrics to come in and, and, and make this gun with the um, biometric scanners right on the grip uh, so it doesn't use the bracelet that the Armatex gun does, that German, German gun that's gotten all the controversy. You just pick up the gun. It, it recognizes you within one second. It becomes operable. Um, right now, it's only available for Model 1911. It's a little conversion kit. You actually take off the grips and you put in, insert it into the into the gun, and then within one second, if your software's been, if your biometrics have been put into the software, it it makes the gun operable and you can use that firearm. So what they've done then, they've taken that to the next step, and some schools have have bought into this idea. They've actually installed gun safes. They don't look like gun safes uh, in different parts of, of school buildings, and what there is is a biometric scanner. On, just on the wall. So if you t put your thumb on that, it reads you and says, okay, you're, you're approved. It opens the box. Once it opens the box, inside is, a, is an IntelliGun. You take that IntelliGun, and that, again, has a biometric scanner on its grip, and if you've been authorized to use that gun, it unlocks the gun. So a teacher who's been trained has gone through a program uh, to use firearms and has a concealed uh, carry permit and all that can then respond to a, a school shooting within seconds with a gun instead of minutes it might take a cop to get there. Mm -hmm. And another technology which people are you know naturally interested in because um, the applications seem like they could be so great and we've been talking about it for a couple of decades now and still isn't quite fixed but it seems like it's getting there uh, is 3D printing. What does our audience need to know about that technology as related to guns? Right. They, they, they made a lot of press and there were, there were, there were plans for, uh, downloaded 100,000 times before the ATF took it off offline that a person could print out this, this uh Fire, I think it was called the Contender. Um, and, and yeah, okay, that got a lot of controversy. But the thing is, that gun is bulky and it's unproven. Uh, it shoots a very light caliber. Uh, it, it's unlikely that someone's going to go through all the trouble of getting a 3D printer and then trying to print out this gun to go around and I mean, the criminal elements to do that. Because actually, I mean, sitting down with, with the ATF agents, I found out that the average uh, price of a gun on the black market, it's only one or $200 more than, it's out, than, it, than it sells for retail. So it's not very much more. Uh, there's enough guns out there that are proven that uh, pack more than one round at a time, which is all that gun would do, um, that you know you're not, it's not going to blow up in your hands, it's concealable and so on. Why would they want to go to this, this extreme of printing off a gun? 
it just isn't really a feasible idea. But the cool part about it that manufacturers are using is that there are a lot of firearms out there that are no longer in production, and someone has a little uh, just a little metal piece on, on it somewhere, some trigger uh, sear or something that breaks, and then they can't fix that firearm unless you, you hire somebody to actually cut that piece of metal to fit, and it's very expensive to do all that, that process. But now with 3D printing technology, all they have to do is scan in one part into a, a 3D scanner, and then you can print out that part. So on demand, they could print parts that then could go back to fix some of these old firearms and so on. So there's manufacturing. There's, there's a lot of cool new ways for this, you know, for 3D printing to be used. But the big conspiracy idea of people printing off their own guns, I, I just don't see it right now. Mm-hmm. Now, with all these technologies, of course, they could be threatened by the government at any time. So I wanted to ask uh, two questions related to that. One is, uh, given military budget cuts, how much does that affect gun development going forward? I know in your book you talk a lot about how it's the civilian market that, in a sense, drives the military market, but will federal budget cuts thwart innovation in the near term? And then the related question is, politically, uh, recently there was a sheriff in Wisconsin who defeated the Bloomberg-backed groups that are obviously anti-gun. Are there any races where guns are playing a big issue that we should be looking at in 2014? Yeah, you know, I've, I've interviewed Sheriff Clark before of Milwaukee County, uh, a fierce defender of the Second Amendment, and he, and he, and he pulled that out. And it, it's interesting to see him, and, and he's a black man going into black neighborhoods and, and speaking about that right to bear arms. And he says that too often uh, the, the, the black populations there in, the, in those inner cities are estranged from their own history and by that, he talks about the, the laws that used to disarm them in the South um, after, after the, the, the American Civil War um, in order to keep them repressed. And so he, he talks about that and, and says that's what's happening in too many of our inner cities, that these people aren't able to arm themselves and don't understand that part of history and that part of our individual rights, that heritage that, that comes down uh, through society. He says, so I, I was a big fan, and it was good to see him win that primary. He's a Democrat, you know. To win that primary, he's talking about uh, running for for mayor of Milwaukee. Yeah, and, and the other question is just on the federal budget cuts, if that will have an impact going forward on innovation in the firearms market. Yeah, I haven't heard any manufacturers say that was harming them at all. and I, So I, I don't see that, that happening. There's so much innovation going on right now, especially on the AR platform, which is so-called assault weapon. Uh, it, it's it's surprising and, and uh, three uh, three gun shooting for example uh, probably a lot of people know what that is but that's that's a cool new sport where guys shoot with a with a pistol with an AR-15 and with a shotgun in very moving uh, courses I, I did one last year that was actually all at night with lasers uh, you know just fun stuff and and those people just are into it and love it and those those people are at the head of it and pushing that whole trend one in five rifles now is sold as an AR-15. So that platform just being – it's so modular. It's just being used and, and perfected by so many companies, so much investment going into all that. I, I don't see that the government money – in fact, I think government money in some ways might even get in the way or send things in, in other directions. I, I don't see it at impeding uh, our, our arms development. I mean, thank goodness we have a private, robust, uh, a strong you know, a bunch of companies and feeding our citizenry with firearms because that also keeps our military at the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. Two more uh, real quick questions. Uh, you've been very generous with your time. I referenced Bloomberg and, and his Mayors Against Illegal Guns campaign. In your book, you speak with various people, be it at the NRA or elsewhere, who seem quite confident that the pro-Second Amendment rights arguments 
will continue to be the stronger argument and will continue to basically capture the hearts of, of a majority of the country. Um, do you see any fear or any potential for the leftist mm-hmm. views about guns to end up defeating the views of pro-Second Amendment rights people? Uh, n- not in the, in the present future. I mean, it, it's really interesting when you look at how gun rights beat the media because over the last half century or so, I mean, the media has been really just by and large – uh, against uh, the individual right to bear arms, yet gun rights has been winning uh, a lot, especially in the last 15 years or so. Why is that happening? Well, you have 100 million gun owners in America who them, by themselves are already a grassroots group because they're already organized into shooting clubs and hunting clubs and all this kind of stuff, doing shooting competitions, all off the radar of the mainstream. They don't really understand all that going on out there. Um, it's also a very practical right that a lot of people come to after that someone's tried to break into their home or whatever and they realize they're defenseless waiting for the police to arrive, so they need some some self-protection. So those two things come together, and you end up with a populace that just really gets it, that gets this as a freedom issue and votes it as, as a freedom issue. It, what you have on the other side, and Bloomberg keeps losing, is you have emotion. And you have emotion after some evil person has done something horrible, uh, but that only lasts so long. It, it's hard to, to make a constituency of people around being victims, because that's what they really are, are trying to do. Uh-huh. And related to that, um, like you, I live in New York State. I live in New York City. My question for you is, if I were to walk into a West Village coffee shop and talk to a random person about guns, they'd probably be very anti-gun. What would be the case that I should make to convince them that our position is the moral position and the right position for the country? You know, that kind of conversation where you have time, you're talking to someone one-on-one, I always ask them why they feel the way they do. And I use the word feel on purpose. But they, you know, invest them in the conversation. Uh, let them get their viewpoints out there because the ignorance is, is astounding. Uh, but, but let them do it. I mean, they have a reason why they feel that way. They're passionate for whatever reason. And it's always emotion-based, not fact-based. So let them get that on the table. And once they put that on the table, then you can start to say a second, actually, this is what's really going on. And look at the number of guns sold has actually gone up, but the homicide rate's gone down. And just start to give them some some help to find the, to look toward the light, look toward the truth in the argument, and and be be compassionate and nice as you do it because they really don't know. No one's exposed them to it. The media that they're reading and so on just really isn't telling them these things. So in a lot of ways, it's not their fault. The name of the book is The Future of the Gun. The author is Frank Miniter. Frank, thanks so much for speaking with us. Oh, thanks for having me. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com slash books and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhwinegarden.